and welcome to episode three of the sweet spot on a farm today we are in a holistic center Cranmore one on lisbon road in belfast and i'm talking to herbalist danny ora hello danny how are you hello susanna i'm fine thank you um thank you very much for talking to us you're welcome First question I'd like to start with is, you know, herbalist is quite traditional profession that goes back centuries. Um, and I wonder, growing up in Northern Ireland, you know, when you were a little boy, you probably didn't come to your parents one day saying, I think I'm going to be a herbalist. <laughs> How did that come about? What happened? Um, well, funny you should say that because as a child, I was very drawn to nature. So when all the other young boys and girls were playing football and games in the street, I would have my head stuck in a hedge or looking at flowers or I'd be climbing up trees. I was very strongly interested in it and I didn't know why. And that was always there with me, you know. So when I later got into a situation where my own health started, I had very bad asthma as a child. And you do all the usual things, don't you? You go to your doctor and you get you know, various medication. And it helped a bit, but it wasn't going away. And then some, somewhere along the line, I read something about a herb um, and diet and things like that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And um, I, uh, I changed my diet. Uh, I started taking some herbs and I was able to stop my asthma. How old were you then? Um, 15, 16. And... Um, I thought, well, that's fantastic. And I went back to my normal diet and routine and it all came back again. So I knew that what I was eating was wrong and what I was doing was wrong. And that just started a lifelong interest in that type of thing. Well, how, how should you do it? How should you live life? And that led me into then becoming more and more interested and then training in it. And, you know, as you know, I've been at this a long time since. Um, but that's how it started. It was just a real passion and interest in living things and the complexity of nature. It's a very healing environment and a very therapeutic environment and people who grow their own produce know this, that when you're connected to um, the seasons by being involved in growing things, it connects you into something very ancient in the human psyche that I believe goes way, way, way back. And we are an agricultural people. But in today's modern age, we've, we've drifted away from that into houses and cities and towns. And we have electricity and we have all these wonderful gadgets, but they don't really make us happy. <laughs> that's very true. Well, 15 years of age, that's in today's terms, I suppose, that's quite young to be suddenly turned back into nature. I mean, it's wonderful. Did, did you grow up close to nature? Not especially, you know. lived on the suburbs of Belfast. I mean, there was a, a small river and a little bit of woodland nearby. That's where I spent all my time. Um, and I spent a lot of the time in the Cave Hill in those days as well. So I, uh, I, my playground, if you like, was those types of areas, you know, nature. Did you have any support from your family and friends from your service? Or what was the response like? Um, he's weird. <laughs> he's a bit strange, isn't he? <laughs> it was one of those things that, you know, when I, when I really got into the field seriously and began to train, you know, this is back in the 1980s, and in those days, you were really strange. Now, in, in today's world, herbalists and naturopaths are becoming quite popular and quite well-known, but in those days... 
but you know nobody knew what these things were and anybody that did it must be very strange. It's nice to be different. <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it helps. I guess that at the time there wasn't really anywhere in Belfast in Northern Ireland or in Ireland as well where you could go and just study herbalism and become a professional. How did you find out what to do? Well, you're, you're right, there was no schools, you know, in, in the mid-1980s when I really began to, to grow herbs and to study them, to harvest them, to read books, to find out information. There's only one school and that was in Kent. That was run by a, a, a guy called Heinz Alestra. Heinz no longer with us. Um, but that was the only school um, in Western Europe at, at, in those days. And it was £3,500 per year in those days, which would be about £10,000 per year in today's money. I couldn't afford to study, you know. In Ireland, there was a family tradition whereby a herbalist would pass on the knowledge to, to, a, fa- to a son or a daughter, and so on it continued. Um, and that died out really in the last century. There are still a few of them left, like um, Sean Boylan down in County Beath is a fourth generation herbalist. Um, so you were really faced with a choice of, well, I can't afford to go to this big school. Um, and I just decided that, you know, I'm going to teach myself. And so I got as many books as I could. But what I was doing at the same time was is that I was actually growing the, the plants or harvesting from the wild. So I was learning directly from nature itself. And nature is the best teacher, you know. And then, um, many years later, somebody said to me, um, oh, you, you can't practice herbal medicine unless you're properly trained. And I thought, oh dear, I better go and properly train. So I went off, and ever since, I've never stopped training. I've, you know, I've done diplomas. Um, I've done a Master of Science degree in herbal medicine. Um, I trained with the Cherokee herbalist David Winston. Um, I've spent time in the Amazon working with tribes harvesting medicines. I've studied Chinese medicine. I've studied Ayurvedic medicine. And at the moment I'm studying um, what's called Yunani Tib, which is the traditional medicine of Arabia. You know, So I'm looking at how all these things are connected because they have very similar ideas in some of them. So in a sense that if you wanted to learn herbal medicine, the best place to start is in nature itself. Books will only teach you so much. Um, Teachers will only teach you so much. The real knowledge comes from actually participating in it. It's like teaching somebody to grow carrots. You know, they will learn the most when they actually try to grow the carrots themselves, no matter what they read or what they're taught about carrots. So we call this tacit knowledge. Um, It's knowledge that comes from the direct experience of working with plants. And when you work with plants closely, you'll see that there are certain characteristics about them. Um, They might look like an an organ inside the human body. For example, pulmonaria, the lungwort, resembles the lungs. Um, This was an old thing called the doctrine of signatures, um, where people used to believe that if it looked like a part of your body, then that's what you used it for. But that was only a very small part of a very big, what we call the language of plants, where you look at different um, characteristics, different associations, and you see that plants that have a certain colour, or have a certain smell, or have a certain shape, or grow in a certain place, tells you about what that plant is used for. And when... You know, in, in, in some of the um, really traditional um, tribal medicines that I've learned, this is what people do. They will go out and they will tell you, oh, that herb has red 
uh, a red flower or red stems. That is associated with medicine of the heart. Okay, or they will say that that smells very similar to newly mown grass. And when you smell newly mown grass, you're smelling what are called coumarins, which are anti-inflammatory. So you knew that if you smelt that smell of something else, you would know that that plant has this property. And then you taste the plant, and you know whether it's bitter or sweet or sour. You're getting more information about it, and eventually you learn to read the plants. You learn to read nature, and this is what... Um, According to some sources, is what the ancient Celts did in Ireland, indeed a lot of Europe as well, because they were readers of the Book of Nature, the Druids and so on. This is what they did. So technically, the Irish are sort of predisposed to yeah, being I used mean, to nature. And when, you, when you begin to trace back the history of it, you know, particularly of the Celts, we have evidence of, of the Celts either trading with or working with the Egyptians in the times of the pharaohs, with the Phoenicians. There are mummies of, of, of Celts, and when I say Celts, I mean people with red hair and plaits in China. You know, so you've got you to gotta ask the question, how did they get there, what were they doing, and so on and so forth. And nowadays, of course, when we're able to trace DNA, we can actually see um, more realistic evidence of these associations in the sense that the Celts and the, the Egyptians have similar DNA. You know, so are we or were we once the same people? Fascinating. That's really interesting where herbalism can lead you. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> so you got to herbalism through your own health. You also mentioned that um, you figured that you were eating the wrong things. You've got to think about a, a human being on this planet Every day is meeting bacteria, virus, fungi, microorganisms, and we've evolved relationships with these other species on the planet. And 90% of the human body is actually bacteria, you know? So only 10% of you is actually you, and you're carrying all this bacteria. So are you just a, a bus for bacteria? Is this what humans are for? But, you know, to call a long story short, Inside our bodies, we've got this ecosystem of bacteria. And modern research, the Human Microbiome Project in particular, tells us that if those bacteria, if that ecosystem is imbalanced, then so are we. If we are sick, then, then it's because they're sick. And if we treat them, if we rebalance them by eating the right foods, yeah, then they have a knock-on effect on our health in ways that we are still yet to measure. For example, um, the bacteria in our guts make up to 80% of um, what's called serotonin, which is, which is what makes you feel happy. Okay? So people who get down and depressed, or not, it's not a problem in their brain, it's actually a problem in their gut. And three quarters of our immune system depends upon these bacteria. So if we get sick easily, it's often to do with an imbalance in, in amongst the bacteria so the use of fermented foods things like probiotics and so on but a diet that is primarily based on fresh produce if I pick something from a field that's fresh it's also covering bacteria if I cook that I remove the bacteria okay but you know a diet that's primarily based on fresh produce keeps the balance of bacteria in the gut but of course in today's modern world People go to supermarket and, uh, and health food shops as well, uh, and they are buying processed food. It doesn't matter if it says organic and special and finest and so on. It is no longer fresh. It has lost its bacteria, you know. So I learned that early on, 
that you had to you had to you know eat a large amount of fresh live produce that's the difference it's live produce it's live food and if you want to have a life and health that's full of vitality then that's the sort of thing you need to eat is food that is also vital so what is your diet like then do you know i mean the, the, the one thing you need to be careful with is that there is no one size fits all and that certain diets are more appropriate to some people than others um, personally I follow a vegan diet and have done for a very long time but that's something that suits me because I found that when I, st- when I stayed on a vegan diet my asthma subsided completely and I never had any problem with it and I used to have eczema as well and that has also n- never had any problem with it um, but that might not suit somebody else so as a practitioner when I do a consultation with someone and I talk to them, I, I'm looking at what are their particular needs, yeah? But one thing that does come into everybody's diet is the amount of fresh produce that's in there. Whatever diet you eat, you've got to have large amounts of fresh produce in there to keep and maintain that bacterial balance. So that means cutting down on processed foods, yeah. processed sugars... Make everything from scratch if possible. Don't boil the heck out of all the vegetables. Yes, yes. I mean, steam your vegetables for 15 minutes, preserves their nutrients. But, you know, I know we have a cold climate here, so it's not an ideal place for a raw food diet. You know, but I still believe that people should try to get 50% of their their diet from raw foods in the wintertime and maybe 60 to 80% in the warmer weather. Raw food is actually something we will talk about sure. uh, with, with Barbara from Atrial Feel Great. Have you met Barbara? Yes, I have actually a few years ago. Only yeah. once, I think. <clears throat> I, I, did, um, I did actually do a, a workshop with her about three or four, maybe even longer than that, years ago. And she contributed to my big change. I mean, at that time, I was already eating what I considered healthy, but... Um, her workshop um, added something to my diet that I didn't mm. have before. I added so much raw foods, you know, like all sorts of raw dips and raw treats. And, and I bought a dehydrator actually um, two years ago, and I, I can't believe that I managed to live without a dehydrator. <laughs> How the hell did I do it? Yeah. But even that, I try not to dehydrate everything, of course. I have the amount of um, raw foods and fresh foods that I have in my diet now, and I have had for the past maybe three years or four years since I, since I been to Barbara's workshop it doesn't even compare to the way I was eating before and it Mm. made a massive change in my life. One of the things that you know I mean dehydrating things is fine to an extent but the other the other thing about raw foods in their fresh state is that they contain their own enzymes which means that they help to digest themselves inside your body but of course when you dehydrate them you the heat and denatures the enzymes so that means that you you have to rely on your own enzymes and it's thought that we have um, a limited quantity of enzymes, you know, so that by the age 50, we've lost 25% of enzymatic function. And by the age of 70, 50% and above of enzymatic function is lost. And maybe, you know, people who die of old age are actually dying from an inability to be able to break down and process foods because their enzymes have been shot. You know, so again, eating a lot of fresh raw produce, those live vegetables coming from the field and fresh fruits from the trees contain their own enzymes and they don't draw upon yours. So people who follow raw food diet 
I mean, it's okay to use some dehydrated, but not to make too much of it in your overall diet. Is there a way to enhance the amount of enzymes we have in our bodies, apart from just eating fresh foods that contain the enzymes? You have several enzymes. You've got um, uh, gastric acid in your stomach. You've got pepsin in your stomach to break down proteins. Then your liver and secreting bile and so on to break all these things down. So in a sense, overall health is very important for breaking down food. So, you know, having a good stomach function, good liver function, good pancreatic function and so on is a good thing. Now, that reminds me of something is that some people say that it's not a good thing to eat three meals a day and that we should have six small meals per day. But, you know, we're putting more pressure on our pancreas and our enzymes when we, when we eat like that, you know. Um, so, you know, the three meal thing is probably a better approach for, for most people. How to enhance enzymes? Well, if you want to increase enzymes, number one is to, you know, as I say, eat lots of fresh food. Don't put as much pressure on your own enzymes. And then to use in particular things which have a bitter taste. If you eat something bitter, the first thing that happens is you salivate. Your mouth starts to fill with saliva. But that has a reflex action throughout the digestive tract, so you're going to secrete more digestive enzymes in general. So in Europe, for example, Swedish bitters was a very popular way. Um, as uh, you know, people used to take this as an aperitif before dinner to enhance their digestion of the meal. Um, so anything that tastes bitter. So your bitter salad leaves like cos lettuce, endive, chicory, radicchio, uh, dandelion greens, and so on, will stimulate the production of enzymes. Even things like citrus fruits, putting you know a slice of lemon into your water will help to raise the hydrochloric acid levels in your stomach and help with the breakdown of protein, which is the thing that becomes particularly difficult as we get older is protein, breaking it down. So those are some things that you can do. And I mean, there are supplements out there and so on, but I, I'd rather, you know, use diet correctly, use a natural approach um, and, and get that natural balance and get the body to do it itself rather than relying on an external pill. What are Swedish bitters? And there are several different recipes for it, but basically it was a collection of bitter herbs. And as I, as I, as I mentioned earlier, at the very back of your tongue you'll see raised bumps. Those are your bitter taste receptors. And they're the most sensitive of all the taste receptors. Um, you have sour receptors on the side of your tongue and sweet and salty receptors on the tip of your tongue. But when you stimulate the ones at the back of your tongue, it improves secretions all the way through your body. Not just digestive secretions, but secretions in your brain, secretions in your heart, secretions in your muscle tissue. Um, so bitters are something in the West that we just don't do. We like savoury, we like sweet, and we think bitters taste awful. But they have such an important health aspect and effects on our health. that In America, for example, there's a herbalist... Um, James Green, who says that a lot of conditions are actually bitter deficiency syndromes. And he has shown, for example, that people who have neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's, um, there's a, there are things in the brain that when stimulated by bitters produce enzymes which help to prevent things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so on. So, I mean, again, this is, this is going back to um, getting out there. 
into the field, growing stuff, you know, learning to identify before you pick stuff in the wild. I mean, that can't be over. And getting live food with its own enzymes, with its own bacteria, you know, and being part of that interconnection, if you like. So all those things will help to raise your enzymatic activity. So is this all that you cover in, in your consultations? Oh, it's only a little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So as a naturopath... I go right back to um, what's called the Hippocratic School of Medicine in the ancient Greece, probably about two and a half to three thousand years ago. Before that time, the common belief system was if you were sick, you defended the gods. And along comes Hippocrates and says, no, what you're doing is you're living against nature. And he picked out six areas. He says, here are six areas that you have an influence on that nature doesn't control. So he picked out these kind of six areas and he called them the six non-naturals. And that's a strange term, non-natural. But what he was saying was that these are six areas that nature doesn't control as much as you do as an individual. So he said they are food and drink, that's number one. Detoxification, how well do you eliminate stuff out of your body? How well do you rest? How well do you sleep? How much fresh air do you get? And what are your passions or your emotions like? He says these are six areas that if you live in harmony with nature in other words if you eat the right food you get plenty of sunshine and fresh air you have a good outlook on life your positive attitude towards life these were the keys to health so when someone comes to see me in a consultation it's these six areas that i'm looking at in their lives i mean primarily i want to know what people are eating because i can look at somebody's diet and i often get people to you know do a week's food diet and i can look at it and i can say well I can't see any magnesium in that diet. I can't see any essential fatty acids in that diet. And you can, you can then explain to people, if you add these foods that contain these things into your diet, then you're providing the things that you're missing. And maybe the symptoms you have are because you're missing some of these key nutrients. Once we have nutrition going and working, people are happy with it. Um, I move on to, to sleep. How well is somebody sleeping? Why are they waking up during the night? Or why can they not get to sleep? Why is their mind racing and so on? What are they doing that might be contributing to that? And then help them to see other ways to unlearn old behaviours and learn new behaviours um, and establish a regular um, sleeping pattern. And in naturopathy, we call it sleep hygiene, the importance of clean sleep. Because in what is called the delta stage of sleep, that's when your body's starting to repair. It's starting to detoxify. It's starting to pull lactic acid out of the muscles. It's starting to clear toxins through the liver. It's starting to rebuild damaged tissue. But if you wake up, you don't get that. Or you don't get enough of it. So people who are not getting, you know, as adults, 8 to 9 hours of sleep every night are getting suboptimal delta sleep. And that has a knock-on effect on the whole system, particularly the immune system. So it's important to you know, address that and show people ways and means of trying to get to sleep and, and establishing a regular sleep pattern. Um, doing all the obvious stuff, you know, avoiding stimulants um, like caffeine. Uh, and alcohol, which although it's a, a depressant, becomes a stimulant once it's been through the liver um, and so on. And from there then we move into exercise. And a lot of people don't do enough exercise, but some people do too much exercise. And doing too much is a form of stress on the body, and it will cause the adrenal glands to release extra cortisol, extra adrenaline, 
you know, and can't keep people in a fight or flight mode. And so they're unable to wind down. They find a hard wax because of that, you know. So those are some examples of some of the, the things that I do. So it's very in-depth. But the whole purpose of it is to try and get people to do two things. Is number one, get back to nature. Get back into the natural ways of living, natural ways of eating, and so on and so forth. And number two... Um, restore people's confidence in themselves because a lot of people get sick because they've lost confidence in themselves and today's society is very hard on people people have to work very long hours they have to you know meet production deadlines um, which are often unrealistic and a lot of people don't get the fulfillment and satiation out of life consequently they turn into the comforted uh, they turn to wrong foods or they turn to drink or drugs or something. Um, as a way around all that, you know, they get sick. <laughs> they come to see me. <laughs> and there we go. But it comes back to those two things for me. is getting people to believe in themselves, to be positive about themselves. And then, as I say, to restore their personal relationship with the natural world. Because that's where healing lies. Do you believe that there is a way for... Um holistic um, healing um, herbalist naturopaths to work together with the traditional western medicine and work in synergy to help people truly heal rather than just covering up symptoms of modern um, illnesses yes I mean it, it's fundamental and it, 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 is, it is happening and it will happen as a matter of necessity I mean the World Health Organization um, released a document originally in 2006 and again they released it in 2013 called the Traditional Medicine Strategy in which they have said that modern medicine has become so big and unwieldy and expensive that we, we are never going to be able to export that to poorer parts of the world okay and therefore we need to preserve um, traditional and natural forms of medicine and integrate them into a new healthcare system. So if you look at the trajectory of that, in 10 or 20 more years time it could be 50% of the global market. So people want this. It doesn't matter what politicians say, it doesn't matter what science says, this is what people look for and people want. The classic example that I could you know, think about there is cancer. If somebody has a cancer diagnosis they're given several options depending on the type of cancer. Um, it could be radiotherapy, chemotherapy, it could be surgery, it could be hormonal therapy. But why, why does nobody mention herbal medicines? Um, why does nobody mention nutrition? Do these things not have a, a part to play? Um, and um, you know, an oncologist will say, oh, don't take any herbs when you're taking your chemotherapy, for example, because they may interact. Well, it is true that herbs and chemotherapy interact, but often in positive ways. You know, the herb turmeric, for example, can enhance the efficacy of chemotherapy by 13%. That's significant, because a lot of the times chemotherapy doesn't work for people. So anything that might enhance it is a good thing. So therefore, what we would like to see would be if somebody had a cancer diagnosis, that they could work with a, a team that involves an oncologist, a GP, a herbalist, and a nutritional therapist. So they're getting the best of all fields. And of course that's something that should be available to all of us, that we get the best, that we have the choice. You know, but the 1939 Cancer Act forbids the treatment of cancer by any means other than conventional. So therefore somebody trying to treat cancer 
you know, using herbal medicines is actually breaking the law. I think that's a disgrace. The research is out there for people who want to go and look at it. Um, there's considerable research on herbs like turmeric, mistletoe, uh, and several others. So when people say there's no evidence for these things or these things don't work, that's actually untrue. It's just that they haven't bothered to look. But of course we live in a society that's dominated by a particular medical model and that medical model is dominated by pharmaceutical interests and I'm aware that we could get into a, a whole big thing about that and I don't want to get into that argument but I would like to say to, to anybody that's listening that you know wants to find out more about that is you know look at research look at clinical research and you will see that there are significant amounts of uh, research and evidence and and trials and reviews of trials about these sorts of things. So my question is, why aren't people being told about them? Hopefully we can see that in our lifetime. Mm. So um, I associate herbalism with Switzerland. They have amazing nature and variety of herbs that are incredibly healing for different reasons. Is there any such thing in Ireland, different herbs that you can get here? Um, Ireland is quite unique because of its high rainfall. Um, and the central part of Ireland has got a lot, a lot of limestone in the bedrock. So it's particularly well suited to grow in green leafy crops. It's one of the best areas of the world, in fact. Um, and there are things that grow here very well that don't grow very well in other parts of the world. And there are species that grow here that don't grow anywhere else in the world. And Ireland itself has a very, very rich herbal tradition. In fact, at the, at the minute I'm involved in a documentary film, and we are actually tracing back the history. Um, and it keeps going further and further back. You know, for example, there are books in some of the museums in Dublin and, and Trinity and the uh, Royal Irish Academy that, from the 12th century, which are herbal books on herbal medicine. And they're already at that stage quite sophisticated. So they're based on something much older before the written word. You know, so you, you go back to these kind of very, very ancient um, um, traditions and ways. In the 1930s, the Irish Folk Commission knew that there was a lot of knowledge still about, so they sent um, school children around to talk to older people. What do you know about old, old herbs? And unfortunately for us, they recorded a lot of this stuff, and the Irish Folk Commission has this. So we, we so a lot of the older traditions and old methods and the herbs that they use are, are actually quite well documented now. Um, so... You know, as, as a herbalist who's trained in, in several different types of herbal medicine, Chinese herbal medicine, um, Cherokee herbal medicine, um, my biggest interest is in my local herbs, you know, so my emphasis is on my local herbs. Um, and uh, there is a great store of knowledge about some of them, but less about others. So there's a lesser known ones that really interest me because I want to make them well known. I want to get people to use them. You know, People go to health food shops and buy expensive products. And if they only knew, they could get things that are twice as good in their back garden. Can you give me an example? What can you find locally? Oh, well, there are hundreds of different things. You know, it depends on what you were interested in. For example, um, let's say um, some uh, like a man who has a swollen prostate gland might go to a health food shop and look for saw palmetto, which is, a, which is an American herb, and it's very good at reducing on a large prostate gland. But we have here um, several herbs. Number one is the nettle, the nettle seed Specifically, the nettle seed has been shown to reduce um, the swelling in the prostate gland, in part because it's high in zinc. 
Um, and another herb called Rose Bay Willow Herb, which farmers are always trying to get rid of, and they're, they're burning. It's a lovely purple flower, and again, the root of it is very good at reducing the prostate. You know, and those things are on our doorstep, but yet people still pay expensive money for American herbs. Do you know? So, I mean, there are many other examples, that's just one. This year, actually, I um, was walking up uh, um, the Rose Garden. I, I go there quite often, actually, um, in, in the summertime and whenever it's warm and nice. I used to cycle up there or up the Cave Hill, and I have a feeling, is it possible that I could see Horsedale? Yes, on the outskirts of near Belfast Castle, as you first walk up the hill, you'll see what's called Mare's Tail. I mean, there's different names in different places, but it's like a larger version of Horsetail. It's got the characteristic middle bit and the little spiky bits come out the side. It's a, a slightly toxic. Horsetail itself is a much smaller plant, um, maybe about you know, a foot, a foot and a half tall. Um, it's called Equisetum arvens in Latin. Um, and it's, it's been around for a long time in herbal medicine. It's full of a mineral called silica, which is a much under-neglected mineral. A lot of people are low on these kind of minerals. We need very, very little of them, but they do play a big part in our health. So that is another local herb that could be very useful. Another one there, and you're just on the same subject, is goji berries. I mean, people are going into health food stores and paying a fortune for a small bag of goji berries. Oh yeah, I'm one of them. <laughs> and and we, we have our own native bilberries in this country, which are actually better than, in terms of they've got more therapeutic activity than goji berries. You know, and they grow on the Cave Hill, amongst other places. Oh, really? Yeah. Are they just as low in sugar as well? Yeah, yeah they're low in... In fact, that's one of their uses. They are, uh, you know, um, if, if somebody has hyperglycemia, you know, if they've got a lot of sugar in their blood, they're good at reducing that type of things. Um, useful for diabetics, um, anybody who's got difficulty losing weight and so on. You know, these are things on our doorstep. And unfortunately, the knowledge of them dies out as each older generation passes on. They take with them some of those old tales and so on. And one of the things that I like to do is rediscover or bring back this information for future generations because it's our heritage, you know. It's, it's, it's who we are, it's where we come from. Our interaction with plants is who we are. You know, someone actually asked me on Facebook whether you do forage and herbal walks? I do. I usually do one once or twice a year, um, depending on how busy I am, and I get very busy. But yeah, I mean, I, I do them in the morns, I do them in the Key of Hell, I do them in various places. Um, normally that would be May-June time, when things are, you know, you'll see them. Also, this time of the year, things are dying back for the winter. I still do the odd one, uh, if I'm, you know, looking at trees or something like that. Um, but yeah, that is something I do. And if people are interested in it, you know, look on my website, you know, around May, June, on the news section, and you'll see when I'm going to do one of those next. Oh, great. We'll get back to that later. Now, I know you're teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come? Did you always want to teach? or? Ooh, that's a good question. It's not something that I always wanted to do, especially. In fact, I was quite shy when I was young. And, you know, if you'd have asked me, you know, I want you to come into a room of 100 people and speak, I'd go get somebody else, you know. Um, I was I was asked to, you know, speak at a few things over the years and I'd go and people seemed to really enjoy it. And as a consequence, I would get asked more to do it. And then I got a reputation and students would ask me to come and teach and, you know, and I developed from there. Um, 
and nowadays I'm teaching all over the world, you know, so from small beginnings. There is a school of herbal medicine in Belfast, is there? There are some people who run short courses or introductory courses, but in terms of practitioner level courses, there is none at the moment, although that's probably going to change soon. I can't say too much about it at the moment, but it is on the cards. What about um, sort of amateur level um, courses for just people who are interested in herbalism? Is that anything that you run or is there anything that is available in Northern Ireland? I know that um, Marion Partridge, who is near Down Patrick, does short introductory courses. Marion's well known uh, in the area. She writes for the local paper. There's also David Foley, who's in Derry, I think, who would do short and courses, but more so for people who had done, you know, some some earlier training and building on that. Uh, but it's surprisingly very little. But there's quite a lot in the south, actually. Uh, my friends in, in Sligo who regularly run courses. In fact, they emailed me today about a, a course on root harvesting, um, how to harvest and prepare roots, which is a which is a very um, tricky. Um, a technique in the sense everybody thinks that herbal medicine you go out and cut leaves or berries or flowers and that's easy to do but actually digging something up knowing what part of the root because sometimes it's actually a section of the root or it might be the root bark or you take the root bark off in the inner part that you want so these techniques are um, very very interesting but it's information that's hard to find but it is something again you know the more I teach People, one of the things I encourage them to do is, is go into your community, tell people, get people involved. I guarantee you that every one of those people will have a tale they can tell about a herb that they picked up from their parents or their grandparents. And try and re- bring back the local knowledge. I have one last question for you. Sure. What is your favourite vegetable? My favourite vegetable? Well, I would have to say it's the pepper. The sweet pepper. You've got the reds, the yellows, the oranges, yeah. the greens. There's purple varieties that you can get as well. And I think it's the, it's very attractive, all those bright colours on, on one level. Um, they're so versatile. You can you know you can stuff them with things, of course, and then you can chop them up and put them through things. But, you know, when you look at what's in them, you know, peppers are the highest source of vitamin C on the planet. They have twice as much vitamin C as something like oranges, which we're often told are the best sources of vitamin C. Um, they're nice raw in a salad. Um, they're full of substances called antioxidants. And antioxidants are things that help to slow down the aging process. The more we have, the longer we're likely to live. Oh, is that your secret why you look so young? Eating <laughs> loads of peppers. <laughs> well, it's one of them, yeah. I so, mean, <laughs> whoever's listening, eat lots of peppers, you're going to look young. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're just, as I say, they're just so versatile and bright and, and just full of, of good chemistry. Do you have a favourite recipe with peppers? Oh, well, I do like a good chilli. Okay, and my chilli is quite complex in the sense that I use things like um, sun-dried tomato paste, um, 85% raw chocolate. Um, I have quite a lot of little strange ingredients that I put into the chilli. So it's generally an onion and pepper and courgette base and maybe mushrooms, depending on what's in season. And then I make a tomato sauce. And, it, you know, the cumin, I use cumin during the cooking process because cumin's got quite deep notes. 
brings taste down, uh, whereas peppers are quite sweet. And then I fill in the, the, the gap in the middle with, with the chocolate and with the sun-dried tomato paste. And you get something that's really kind of umami, if you know it, or umami, in that kind of, um, I think it's umami. Um, all the different tastes at once go on in your mouth. Well, I sprinkle fresh coriander on it, and so on guacamole with it. Oh, that sounds really mm. good. Um, well, if you don't mind, would you be able to send me the recipe so we can uh, share it with our listeners? I or is it a secret? <laughs> I will happily send it to you. Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> so whoever is listening, get onto our The Sweet Spot on a Farm group on Facebook, and the recipe will be there very soon. So that is it for this evening. Uh, thank you very much, Johnny, for talking to oh, me. It was welcome. very interesting. Good. Now, where can people find you? Okay, um, my website is belfastherbalist.co.uk. That's my main, I have several others, but that's the main website at the moment. Um, you can read about what I do on that website in the frequently asked questions section. I have a new section there where you can read about if I'm doing any talks or forage walks or whatever, and the latest updates. And there's some information on um, herbal medicine in general on there. Um, and if you if people are interested, maybe booking in can do, do that on the website as well. Okay, so if you would like a consultation with Danny, you go to belfastherbalist.co.uk and book your appointment. And the clinic is in 1 Cranmore Park, which is at the corner of Cranmore Park and Lisbon Road on Belfast. Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you, Susanna. Herbal medicine is something I personally find incredibly interesting. It goes way back to my childhood when I used to pick nettles and rose hip and chamomile and um, the linden flower with my grandmother. Um, we used to sun dry them and store them in my granny's pantry, which was pretty big, by the way. And I remember drinking chamomile tea with honey every time in winter I got a bit of cold and it was so comforting. And uh, we used to grow a lot of vegetables and fruits and eat so much fresh food, exactly what Danny was talking about about but um it is as if i forgot or didn't appreciate enough the power of the nature and somehow living and studying in the busy city of prague years ago i was removed from all of that and i drastically changed my habits and managed to pretty much destroy my health in the process and i have dedicated the past 15 years to rediscovering all of this and to getting my health back on track and it is people like danny who helped me find the way back to nature and the more I listen to them, the more sure I feel about the path I have taken with regards to my own health. As Donny said, one thing I would really like to see in our lifetime is the traditional medicine teaming up with natural medicine. There are too many people like myself who could benefit from both worlds and too many people who are unable to afford it. Natural medicine, when sought privately, can be expensive and therefore not accessible to everyone. Saying that... Can we really put a price on our health? I will leave you with that, I think. As I'm recording this, I still don't have um, Johnny's mysterious chili recipe. But um, I'm going to nudge him and put it as PDF in the file section of our group. If you haven't joined yet and would like the recipe, find the sweet spot on a farm on Facebook and join up. Downloadable recipes from our guests aren't the only cool thing you might find there. And if you'd like to find out more about herbalism, future talks or foraging walks, or if you'd like to get a complex consultation with Donny himself, go to www.belfastherbalist.co.uk to book an appointment.
I, for one, will definitely keep an eye out on his website next year, May, June time, for some foraging walks. So perhaps I'll see you there. That's all for me. Have a great two weeks. Try adding some more fresh foods into your diet and stay healthy. Your host was myself, Susanna, the author of The Sweet Spot. Music has been provided by Mark J. Adair of Synchro Studios and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan of Gemma O'Hagan Design. Thank you for listening.